Hey, good morning, everybody. My name's Torn. I get to be one of the pastors here at TLC, and I love my job. Super excited to be able to worship with you in person, and for those of you that are joining us online, welcome. Glad that you guys are here as well. Uh, Back in 1914, uh, two years after the tragic sinking of the Titanic, there was another large carrier vessel called the SS Monroe that sank off the coast of Virginia. Was it Virginia? Yes, Virginia. Uh, In the waters of the Atlantic. And uh, it happened only 50 miles into its journey. It was a passenger ship that uh, carried around 300 at least at this time, 300 passengers and crew. They were on their way from Norfolk to to New York City for an overnight trip. About 50 miles into its journey, it was struck by another larger vessel, the SS Nantucket, which actually was the reason for its demise. Uh, The Ships were in a very dense fog that night, and neither one knew of each other's whereabouts. Uh, This is actually from a New York Times article written in 1914. Uh, Captain Johnson of the SS Monroe, the ship that went down, shared what happened. He says this, In telling the story of the disaster, he said that the first knowledge he had that the Nantucket was near him in the fog was when he heard a whistle, three points on the starboard bow. He was running at half speed at the time and stopped his engine to locate the other ship and blew his whistle twice to let the vessel know he was steering to port. He judged the whistle was about 375 feet away. Next, he saw a faint light four points to starboard and about 340 feet away, he said. He believed the other vessel was going in the opposite direction to him on a parallel line, but a moment later, the ship came out of the fog almost at right angles and struck the Monroe on the starboard side aft of the pilot house. There was a lapse of only two minutes between the time he heard the Nantucket's first whistle and the collision, he declared. Uh, When the ship went down, uh, there was a huge lawsuit, uh, $2 million at the time, which is about $25 million in our uh, money, today's money. Uh, It was actually settled for the cost of the Nantucket. They basically sold the ship that survived the Nantucket and uh, was sold for $85,000, about $2 million our time, and that's all the money that was used to be able to deal with the settlements. But the real cost wasn't in the loss of the ships or the settlement that came from it. It was actually in the loss of life. 41 passengers that night died, including an infant when the ship went down. The article that I just read a little piece from was actually an inquiry that happened about three weeks after this tragic accident in a court of law in Philadelphia. They were actually talking to both captains to try to ascertain uh, what happened and why it happened. And so that particular day, they came together and questioned those two captains about why the ships collided. I'd like to answer that question for you a little bit later. So hold on to that. But right now, I'd like to shift our attention to another question. What do you love? What do you love? Now, I know that's kind of an interesting question because we kind of get asked that all the time. Yo, do you love vanilla or chocolate? Do you love, 
you know, left Twix or right Twix? You know, do you love whatever it is where you get asked that question quite a bit, right? This, though, I think is one of the most important questions that any of us will ever be able to answer. We're kicking off this brand new series called Cardiology. You are what you desire. And uh, it actually comes from a book, uh, a book by the name, uh, by the guy named James K.A. Smith. Dr. Smith is actually a professor at Calvin. Uh, any Calvin grads in the house, all right, representing. Uh, uh, we're going to take a little bit of what Dr. Smith says today to help us begin uh, this series over the next few weeks. Now, uh, for the past few hundred years, and you're going to have to bear with me this morning, uh, we're going to be dealing with a little bit of philosophy, uh, some theology. Uh, we're going to go a little bit deep, but I, I think that it will be very, very practical for us at the end and lead us into some even more practical things in the weeks to follow. But for the past couple hundred years, we've been programmed to believe that it's our thoughts that control our behavior. All right, we are first and foremost thinking beings. All right, this really comes to us uh, from Rene Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore, I am, right? You've heard that. I mean, you all learned that when you're growing up. You probably heard it a little bit in middle school. You got more of it when you were in high school. You probably delved deeper into it when you were in college. I think, therefore, I am. Now, what Descartes is basically saying here is that it's our brains, it's our minds that define us and drive us. Our brains, our minds, our thoughts, our knowledge... That's what defines us, and that's really what drives us. And, and I remember when I was in seminary, I actually wrote an entire paper about discipleship, and I talked about some of the different things that flow into how a person becomes more like Christ, how a person falls in love with Christ, and I totally bought in to this Cartesian philosophy that I think, therefore I am, that I am first and foremost a thinking being. I don't agree with myself anymore. Now, to say that out loud, quite honestly, in many places almost feels like heresy, right? Because for the last few hundred years, this has been the dominant philosophy for who we are as human beings. I think, therefore I am. What I know, what I understand, what happens in my mind, that controls my behavior, that controls what I do. The Bible, though, has not taught that. The Bible has actually taught something a little bit different. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't care about our thoughts or the knowledge that we have or what we think about. Of course, it absolutely does. But Scripture has taught that it's not our thoughts that drive us, it's our loves. It's not our thoughts that drive us, it's our loves. Now, uh, it doesn't mean that our thoughts don't matter. But when it comes to what you do, especially what you do in your subconscious, it is always your loves that orient you. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, who became a follower of Jesus after persecuting the church, he, he hated Jesus for a time. He meets Jesus on the road. Uh, he is blinded in this experience. Uh, God miraculously heals him, and he goes on to be one of the greatest followers, lovers of Jesus in all of history. He winds up writing a lot of our New Testament, and he goes out into the Roman Empire to a bunch of different cities to tell them 
about Jesus, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did die on the cross and was raised back to life. He talks about the uh, transformation that he had when he experienced Jesus himself, and he plants churches, these little groups of Jesus followers, in all these different cities throughout the Roman Empire. One of these cities is the city of Philippi. And so he wrote the Philippian church, the church that was there in Philippi, and he loved these people. He just had a really, really close relationship with them, and so he had writes them this letter because he wants to encourage them. Look at what he says, Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He said, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You see at the beginning here as he begins to address them, you can just sense the passion, the love, the the affection that he has for them, right? I mean, he talks about it like he has such gratefulness and joy for their relationship. He's glad that they're in his his life. He, he longs to see them. He talks about the affection that he has to them. He actually says that he carries them in his heart. Now, in this moment, he's not describing his thoughts about them as much as he's describing his love for them, his feelings for them. And if we continue on looking in verse 9, we will see the prayer that Paul is praying for his close friends, these ones that he loves. Look what he says. He says, and this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, uh, when I first read this, and maybe when you did as well, You probably thought to yourself, well, Paul is a Cartesian. (laughs) He totally buys this. I think, therefore I am. Look what he prays for him. He wants their knowledge to grow, right, to abound, and depth of insight so they can know how to discern. Like, that sounds like it's all up here, mind stuff. And it is, but it's so easy to miss how Paul actually begins his prayer. Uh, To be honest, a couple years ago even, I probably would have glossed over that first part. Because he starts by praying that their love might abound more and more. And I would have been like, yeah, we get it. Like, you know, God is love. We're supposed to love others. And I always go straight to the actions of love, which is great. Okay? Love is a verb, right? We talk about that all the time. But love isn't only a verb. Uh, Dr. Smith actually says this. Listen to what he says. He says, if you read it too quickly, you might come away with the impression that Paul is primarily concerned with knowledge. Indeed, at a glance, given our habits of mind, you might think Paul is praying that the Christians in Philippi would deepen their knowledge so that they will know what to love. Then he says, but look again. In fact, Paul's prayer is the inverse. He prays that their love might abound more and more. 
and, uh, excuse me, more and more, because in some sense, love is the condition for knowledge. It's not that I know in order to love, but rather I love in order to know. And if we're going to discern what is best and what is excellent, what really matters, what is of ultimate importance, Paul tells us, uh, excuse me, what is of ultimate importance, Paul tells us that the place to start is by attending to our loves. Paul isn't saying that you are what you think. He's saying you are what you love. You are what you love. Uh, around 397, between like 397 and 400 AD, uh, the preeminent Christian philosopher, Augustine, actually wrote his most famous work. Uh, it's called Confessions. It's a kind of an autobiography, but it's really uh, him reflecting on his life before Christ and him coming to Christ and all the different things that were happening within that particular space for him, and then theologically and philosophically reflecting on those things to draw meaning. It's one of the most powerful works in all of Western literature. Uh, People who are followers of Jesus and people who are not followers of Jesus uh, look to this work as one of the greatest works. He writes it around 397 between then and 400 AD, so just a few hundred years after Christ. He's African. He lives in the northern part of Africa, and that's where he's writing this from, and he actually pens what is considered one of the greatest opening lines in all of literature. It's a classic, and it's been massively uh, influencing to all of Western thought, but especially those of us who purport to be followers of Christ, when he says this, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, there's three things that this epic line helps us understand about uh, our loves and our lives. And Dr. Smith helps us unpack this a little bit, okay? So Dr. Smith says, first, it recognizes that human beings are made by and for the creator who is known in Jesus Christ. He says, in other words, to be truly and fully human, we need to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and for whom we are made. The gospel is the way we learn to be human. So that's the first thing, okay? We are made by God for God. You, God, have made us for yourself. Now, the second implication here, and it's actually a little bit hard to understand it in the English, but it makes more sense when you read it in the Latin, which is what uh, Augustine actually uh, wrote it in, uh, is that the uh, the implicit picture of being human is dynamic. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain. He says to be human is to be for something, directed toward something, oriented toward something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, to be after something. Uh, Philosophy uh, uses the term uh, teleological, that we are teleological or teleological beings. We have a telos. It just means a goal, a reason for living. You are designed with a goal to move towards. So when he says that we were made by God, he, God made us for himself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now, this third thing that we learn from this kind of opening, beautiful, powerful, epic line is that Augustine locates, uh, like, our center, okay? The organ or orientation of the human being is the heart. Now, he's not the first one to talk about it like this, 
But he's saying that it's our, it's our heart that is restless until it rests in you. He's saying that's the, the main piece of you or the orienting piece of you. Uh, Smith says, why? Because the heart is the existential chamber of our love. It represents our desires, okay? And it is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end or goal, whatever our telos is, our aim, the thing that we're supposed to be going for. Now, I know that you're like, yo, this is getting really, really deep. It is, but that's all right. Y'all are smart. Y'all are smart. You can handle it. Don't check out. Hang with me, all right? This has massive implications for who we are and what we're becoming. Now, uh, Augustine didn't have a name for gravity, okay, because I was going to say gravity wasn't invented. Gravity was invented, but gravity hadn't been explained at that point. It was actually about 1,300 years later that Sir Isaac Newton uh, forms uh, his theory of gravitation, all right? So he doesn't use the word gravity, but he talks about a very similar phenomenon. Uh, he uses the word weight. He says that everything has a weight, and it's restless until it finds its equilibrium or its place. Listen to what Augustine says about this. He says, a body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downwards, but to its appropriate position. Because normally when we think of weight, we think of like a rock. And you drop the rock and the rock falls, right? But he says, other things have different weights. He says, fire tends to move upwards. A stone, downwards. They're acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. He says, oil poured under water will be drawn up to the surface. Or if you pour water into oil, it will sink beneath the oil. They act on their respective densities. They seek their own place. And look what he says now. He says, things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. And my weight, my gravity, is my love. It's what I love. When he says, you, God, have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds you, it's talking about a heart that's constantly seeking, that never feels like it's in its proper place. And no matter what it is, it's always going to move until it finds its proper place. If I were to drop a rock right now, it would fall until it hit the ground. And if the stage were to open up, it would keep falling until it found its place. If I were to release some helium into the air, the helium would go up until it found its place. That's what happens for all of us. And he says, look, our love is the thing that orients our lives. That's our weight as human beings. And we are restless, moving, constantly searching, looking for that thing that will allow us to be at rest. Wherever I am carried, Augustine said, my love is carrying me. Uh, if I love things, then my weight will draw me downward towards inferior activities. If I love God, my weight will draw me up towards heaven. What you love is what you pursue, and what you pursue is what you become. You cannot help it. What you love is what you pursue. 
and what you pursue is what you become. This is true for every single human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Whether you are aware of it or not, it will absolutely be the compass of your love and it will drive your life. You become what you desire. Now, uh, what does this all mean? Are we doomed to blindly follow the loves that we have hidden within our hearts? The sad answer is for a lot of people, yes. For a lot of people, the answer is yes because we don't pay enough attention to our loves. We don't take the time to listen and reflect, to pray, to invite other people into our lives to share with us what they see, we're not aware of what's actually driving us, what it is that we're actually pursuing, what our love, our weight actually is. If we refuse to participate in community, if we refuse to humbly listen to others that God has placed in our lives, if we refuse to slow down long enough to listen to the things that are ticking deep within us, then we are doomed to simply blindly follow those loves to their end. The good news is, it doesn't have to be this way. So our last passage I want us to look at this morning is found in Colossians. It's another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's just a couple of books over from Philippians. If you want to flip over to Colossians chapter 3, this was a a city that Paul had visited. He had shared the gospel, spent time there. There were people who became followers of Jesus, and Paul established a church, and now he's writing to this church again. He, he wants them to remember that what they were is no longer what they are now. And so he's going to talk about some things he wants them to take off, like talking about clothes. He's like, you need to take some of this stuff off, and there's some other things you need to be putting on. So let's look at what he says, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. I just got to stop for a quick second. You need to know that God's weight, the thing that he loves, the thing that drives him is you. God loves you. That's his driving, his orienting force. That's crazy when I think about that. Everything God does is because of his love for me. So often we're like, oh, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't do this. If God loved me, he wouldn't do that. If God loved the world, he wouldn't allow. God's orienting love is towards you. Keep reading. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive us the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, uh, love for Paul is this thing that binds our lives together. It's the thing that is God's orienting purpose, his love for us. And now Paul is saying, hey, all these virtues that I'm talking to you about, like he earlier listed some vices. He's like, yo, here's some vices. You got to take those off. 
All right, that's not you anymore. Here's some virtues because of who you are. You need to put those things on. But he's like, overall, that put on love. Love is the thing that is your orienting. It's the belt that's holding it all together. It's the, the, the thread that's tying everything in. But what is he saying that love is actually going to determine? What is it shaping for us? Whatever we love shapes our virtues. It also shapes our vices, to be honest. He says that it shapes our virtues. Now, a virtue is one of those words that, like, honestly, I don't, couldn't remember the last time that I've used the word virtue. All right? Oh, they're so virtuous. Like, I have, the last time I think I used it was virtue hard cider. <laughs> and I don't know why they call it virtue hard cider, but they do. So, virtues. What are virtues? Virtues are good moral habits. They are not actions as much as they are internal dispositions. Okay? So if you're kind, you write nice notes to people. But if you write nice notes to people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're kind. Kindness is the virtue. Writing a note is the action. All right? Uh, If you're generous, you're probably going to give money, share the things that you have. If you give money or share the things you have, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're generous, though. Generosity, all right, that's the virtue. Giving is the action. Don't confuse the two, all right? Virtues are those underlying things that are second nature. They're, they're kind of like the subconscious things that are built into who we are as individuals, and it is our love that binds all of the virtues together. It's our love that kind of shapes our virtues, which is kind of the internal why we do the things that we do. Uh, do you know you never really think about driving home from work unless you just got a new job or a new house, right? You, you never think about how to unlock your phone. You can probably do it in your pocket without even looking at it, can't you, right? You don't think about breathing or walking, Maybe now you're thinking about your breathing. But most of the time, you don't think about your breathing, do you? Did you know there was a time that you didn't know how to breathe? What? Yeah. About nine months when you were in your mother's womb, you didn't know how to breathe. In fact, doctors tell us, I just learned this, somewhere around weeks 30 to 32, uh, infants in the womb actually start practice breathing. They're not actually breathing because they can't suck anything into their lungs because they're filled with amniotic fluid, but they begin to practice. There was a time when you didn't know how to walk, but now you never think twice about getting up out of your seat and walking. You don't think to yourself, oh man, which leg goes first? (laughs) Right leg? Is this a right leg day or is this a left? I don't know. Ah, Fall over. No, why? Because it's second nature to us. Right? These things become second nature, and that's really what virtues are or vices. They're second nature. They're they're the things that actually cause us to act one way or another. And that's why Paul says, hey, I want you to put off some things, and I want you to put on some other things, and they're all bound together with love. Because what you love is what you pursue, and what you pursue is what you become. That is our reality. That's the compass of our life. Our love is a compass that directs us. Um, During this inquiry that happened over the sinking of the SS Monroe, they put each one of the 
captains up on the stand to ask questions. And uh, Captain Johnson, who was the captain of the Monroe, actually was on the stand for five hours. And one of the things that they found when Captain Johnson was on the stand is that the compass, because they used compasses to steer back then, his compass was actually two degrees off. Now, that doesn't sound like much, right? Two degrees, big whoop. Even he tried to say that, like, ah, we do this all the time. It's not a big deal. Uh, he hadn't calibrated his compass in over a year for as long as he had been captaining that ship. Uh, here's the problem, though. Uh, for every degree you are off, it's about 90 feet a mile. So if you're two degrees off, you're about 180 feet per mile. They were 50 miles, give or take, from where they had started, which meant that his ship could have been off course by as much as a mile and a half at that point. You see, it's easy to kind of fake it. Two degrees doesn't look like much. You can... You can feel pretty good about yourself. You might go to church. You might even be in a small group. You might do some stuff. Two degrees doesn't look that different. But two degrees over 20 years can put you way farther away from where you ever expected to be. So I will ask us one more time. What do you love? how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy. Those are all the ways that you can get an accurate accounting of what you love. Now, uh, those things are actions, right? But they're always shaped by our virtues and our vices, which are always shaped by our loves. And I'm not sitting here throwing stones at y'all. Because all week I've been like, God, how am I supposed to preach this message? Look, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I do the same things you do when I start thinking about my checkbook, my calendar. What am I thinking about? What takes up my energy? And so I'm not here to try to make you feel terrible about yourself. Quite the opposite. What I want to do is offer hope because what Paul reminds us is that regardless of where we're at now, there is possibility for us to move, for us to be recalibrated, for our hearts to fall in love with Jesus again. It's actually built right into our mission statement. We say we are a multiplying church, helping the next generation fall in love with Jesus to create better futures. That's what we're about. We want to be a multiplying church, planting churches. We want to be about the next generation, looking to those who are coming up behind us, paying attention to the, to the path that we're blazing for them, challenging them, saying, hey, we are for you and we want to we raise you up. And we say that we're about helping people fall in love with Jesus to create better futures. If you wanted to know the one thing in that entire mission statement that I care about, it's falling in love with Jesus. That's all I care about. Because if, if I can help somebody fall in love with Jesus, if I can continually fall in love with Jesus myself, Man, it starts to take care of everything. Why? Because it is what we love that orients our entire life. Friends, what do you love? Look, God's not looking for perfect people. God's looking for people who are willing to say, God, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to fall in love 
with you. And so last week, I asked you to pray a really simple, but admittedly kind of dangerous prayer. God, give me the gift of faith. You remember that? I said, hey, would you pray this? And I hope that you've continued to pray that. God, give me the gift of faith to believe, to understand. Today, I'm going to ask you to pray another very simple prayer. And it is simply this. God, would you help me fall in love with you? Now, don't give God permission to do something that you don't really want him to do. Seriously. Don't pray that prayer unless you can mean it and be like, yo, God, whatever it takes, whatever it means, I'm in. I just want to love you. I was praying that prayer, honestly, just a little earlier this morning. And I started thinking about some of the things that God might do. Literally, we were sitting here worshiping. And I was praying, God, I want to love you. I want to love you fully, totally. I want you to be my everything. And then I started thinking about things that God might do. And I was like, whoo, whoo, whoo. Okay, Lord, like, be easy, all right, gentle. But then I was like, God, I, you know what? I know that that's what's best. I know that that's what's best. So you know what? Do whatever you got to do. Do whatever you got to do. Would you pray that prayer today? Um, there's two important ways that we actually can begin to change our loves, to move our vices to virtues. And I'm going to talk about them next week. So if you care about that, y'all got to come back. That's just how it is. We're going to end today simply by asking God to change our hearts, to help us fall in love with him. Would you pray with me? <sighs> Father God, we want to love you. But God, not just with words, not just with thoughts. God, we want to love you with our whole being, our heart. God, we know that what we love is what we pursue, and what we pursue is what we become. So God, let us love you to pursue you to become like Christ. Forgive us for the ways that we fail you, that we run after our own loves, for the ways that we love ourselves over you. Jesus, let us fall in love with you again. Thank you, God, that your orienting love is towards us. That's why you do everything that you do. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for proving your love for us by allowing him to come to this earth to be crucified, murdered, pay the penalty for our sin. That he didn't just die and was buried, but resurrected back to life three days later, just as he promised. And now that is our life too, resurrection life. Let us live in that. Let us live in that life, God, with hearts fully in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.